This morning, I'm going to wrap up the kind of Willow Park look at the Ten Commandments. Uh, we are not 100% in order. If you were to read them, you would say, well, Doug, this isn't actually the one that's listed last, but I'm not sure if that matters terribly much. The only commandment that we haven't looked at or talked about is the one that says, you shall not steal. And you may think, well, that's a bit of an odd topic for the last Sunday before Christmas. Almost Grinch-like. But when I think about that commandment, the flip side of that commandment, you shall not steal, at least to me, that the Bible would say you need to feel free to give as generously as your heart feels like giving. Um, so that's kind of where I'm going in the sermon, that yes, we should not steal, but God says give as freely as your heart desires to give. When I look at this commandment, it sounds like another one that is a statement of the obvious. That if something doesn't belong to you, don't take it. If you have something that actually rightfully should be given elsewhere, give it. I think the Bible actually makes a fairly strong statement in recognizing what I would call private property rights, that people have the right of ownership to things that are legitimately their possession. I think the Bible also would indicate that not only will people own things, most of us do, there may very well be a wide discrepancy in what that looks like, that some will own a lot, and some may own very little, but what they have is theirs. In Acts, there is an example, it's a group of Christians, we call it the early church, where many in that group were selling possessions, some were selling property, and contributing that to the common good of the church. And I think it says in that story that there was no one in need. And when Ananias and Sapphira, most of you know that story, they sold some property and brought it. And Peter said to them, you know, before you chose to sell that property, it was yours. And he says to them, even after you sold the property, what you choose to do with the proceeds is your decision. Because it was your property, it belonged to you. At times you will hear people say that it's all God's. That everything is God's. But I think the Bible would state, and some of you might disagree, would state that what you own is actually legitimately yours. 
And the Bible would say to us, now steward it in an honorable way. Steward it, give it in a generous way. And Ananias and Sapphira's sin was that they handed over some of the proceeds of the sale of their property under the pretense that they were giving it all to God, yet they were keeping some for themselves. So I see the story in, in, in there. The message is, is not about that we should give up our property, give up our possessions, and adopt a communal lifestyle. But I think it is an example of the early church taking care of one another's needs, and that remains a biblical mandate, that we need to care for one another. I listened to an interview a couple of weeks ago on CBC with uh, a fellow named Patrick Lesage. He's a highly respected Canadian judge, was Chief Justice of the Ontario Supreme Court of Justice until 2002, and when asked specifically what he felt about laws, he said, you know what, ideally every law should be described in a way that the average person understands it. That you don't need a legal degree to actually interpret what the law says. And you know, when I listened to that, it reminded me of the Ten Commandments. There is both simplicity and clarity in how God chose to phrase his commandments for his people. And if you were to ask anyone, after reading the commandment, you shall not steal, whether they understood what that meant, the answer would be a unanimous yes, I get it. Now Paul says in the New Testament that all of the relational commandments, the ones shall not steal, shall not commit adultery, shall not commit murder, shall not bear false witness, kind of relational commandments can be summed up in one phrase. Love your neighbor as yourself. That if I truly love my neighbor, I will not steal from them. When I was thinking about the word neighbor, I was suggest that the biblical version of neighbor is quite different than what our world might attach to that word. Neighbor is not limited to the people in my cul-de-sac. It's not limited to the people that I might be able to see from my porch. It's an all-inclusive word. It includes people I do not know. It includes people I may never meet, people I may just bump into. The Bible would say they are all my neighbors. So the context of do not steal within the sense of taking something from your neighbor is an incredibly broad one. Theft is a crime that exacts a human toll, and I would say a societal toll. It affects the lives of those who are victimized. 
and it compromises the integrity and character of the perpetrator. I think likely everyone here likely has a story of having something stolen from them, either personally or maybe from your property or in your family. I do live in a cul-de-sac, and the house that is located closest to the walkway for the first few years had terrible time with things disappearing from their front yard because the walkway made for a very easy escape. So they began to replace small flower pots with gigantic flower pots that you would need a mini forklift to move. And that was their way of kind of getting around the fact that things were going missing. I remember as a teenager saving up money. I delivered Vancouver Sun newspapers in Chilliwack. As a teenager, I saved up money from that. I picked berries every summer in order to buy a Raleigh five-speed bike. I knew which bike I wanted. It was in the store, and I was saving my money for it, and I bought it. And I don't think it was more than a month later. We were at a youth gathering at a local school gymnasium, and when I got out of the gymnasium at the end of the school, end of the gym night, the bike was gone. And I must admit, it hurt. Theft in all of its forms, I think, is one of the most challenging systemic problems we face. And it speaks to the flawed condition of the human heart. That to some extent, we, and I do include us in the church, struggle with all the things that are actually mentioned in the Ten Commandments, including theft. The word itself has many manifestations, from petty theft to, you know, burglary, looting, shoplifting, auto theft. Today, increasingly, theft takes on different forms. We call it, perhaps, white-collar crime, fraud, embezzlement, theft of intellectual property, identity theft. Forms that are perhaps more covert. They're hidden and perhaps nonviolent. Yet often they exact a greater toll on people than the more common forms of theft that we usually think of. Theft may be taking what is not rightfully mine, but it can just as likely be keeping what rightfully belongs to someone else. Or, in the case of taxation, what rightfully belongs to my country. And I would suggest that likely hanging on to what rightfully belongs elsewhere is perhaps a bigger challenge within the context of the church. I might say, you know what, I would never even think of stealing something from my neighbor. But I may try to find ways to shortchange the tax man or avoid some other financial responsibilities that come as being part of a citizen. And in the end, the Bible would say to us, you know what, it's all wrong. Do not steal, 
In the New Testament it says, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. Love your neighbor, whoever that might be. Theft costs North American retail business billions of dollars every year. And I found it interesting that employee theft is a greater problem than shoplifting. That most companies say their biggest challenge is the people that actually work for them taking things that rightfully should not be found in their home or on their yard. Identity theft, they say, is the fastest growing form of theft, outstripping what you might call traditional theft. And not only does it result in financial loss, but it quite literally has the potential to compromise who people are. The Bible talks about employers paying their workers before the sun goes down, and the Bible talks about employees working in an honorable way. That as Christians, we should exhibit a solid work ethic. There are employees, employers who seek to avoid ways of paying their employees what is due them. And there are employees who shirk their responsibilities. I don't know, by wasting company time, by abusing sick days. And I must admit, I'm amazed at how often I will hear radio kind of open line show hosts suggesting to the listeners, you know what, today might be a good day to call in sick. And I know it's probably meant kind of in jest, but it's almost like there's an expectation that it's going to happen. Every university campus will tell you that one of their biggest struggles is that of plagiarism. Students using somebody else's work, somebody else's effort, and passing it off as their own. That theft not only costs us in terms of the loss of property, billions of dollars, but our society spends billions of dollars trying to mitigate its effects. Insurance companies raise their rates, banks and financial institutions raise their fees or they add new fees. Special investigators are hired to identify white collar crime. The courts and justice system seek to determine guilt or innocence and it all comes to a, at a huge cost. To society. I sometimes think that if we were, as mankind, generally good, honest, upright people, we would have more money in our system than we would know what to do with in terms of taking care of the poor among us. And I just want to say that as Christians, our conduct in the marketplace, if it is at odds with what it means to reflect the character of God, we undermine our own integrity, we undermine our own character, and we undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ.
As men and women of God, we need to be exemplary employers. We need to be exemplary employees. We need to be exemplary citizens. I think that's what it means in the New Testament when Jesus says you are to be salt and you are to be light. It's about obedience to the commands of God. In the Old Testament at times, uh, the nation of Israel, God's people, were reprimanded for stealing from God. Malachi 3.8 says this, Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you asked, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? And he says, you have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due me. Now the tithe was a requirement of God's people and it was meant to support the work of the Levites, the spiritual leaders. It was meant to support the costs of running the tabernacle and all the festivals that were associated with that. It was meant to help support the families of the Levites. In Deuteronomy 26, verse 12 and 13, it goes further. It says, every third year, you must offer a special tithe of your crops. And in this year of the special tithe, you must give your tithes to the Levites, foreigners, orphans, and widows, so that they will have enough to eat in your towns. Then you must declare in the presence of the Lord your God, I have taken the sacred gift from my house, and I have given it to the Levites, foreigners, orphans, and widows, just as you commanded me. I have not violated or forgotten any of your commands. The language of the Old Testament occasionally also has what I consider to be a New Testament sound to it. In Deuteronomy 15.7 it says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. And I would call that a new, a new Testament perspective on giving. Tithing language, as far as I can tell, does not exist in the New Testament. There are those who continue to preach the tithe, that 10% of your gross income should go directly to the church and offerings should be over and above that. I actually think we need to be careful in how we present that. That it can easily become, I think, a judgmental or legalistic form of teaching and I believe it has the potential to limit generosity rather than to encourage it. Some of my own personal challenge with a strict tithe is that it assumes that a family, let's say, with a $40,000 income and giving $4,000 is somehow on par with a family with a $140,000 income 
giving 14,000. Yes, the percent is the same, but the sacrifice involved is hardly equal. I also resist the discussion about, well, is it about gross income or is it about net income? In the Old Testament, it talks about giving of the first fruits of your labor. And I think it could be argued, and I don't mean this in any negative way, that the government takes the first fruit of our labor through direct or indirect taxation, the first fruits of our labor go to our government and some of it does help provide for the poor, for the needy within our society. And I remember as a, well, I guess a 16 year old, up until then, you know, you had to sort of deliver papers and pick berries, but at 16, I could escape the berry field and I could get, a work, get work in the processing plant. And I remember getting my first little paycheck and being shocked that 40 hours times $3 an hour didn't equal $120. Some of it was missing. It was my initiation into the world of taxation. And I think the Bible would say we need to give there. But in spite of what we give through taxation, I think the Bible reminds us, you know what, the poor are still always going to be with you. So we're not off the hook simply by saying, well, I pay taxes, take care of those people. Done. The New Testament says you need to care for one another, care for those in need. This commandment to us to not steal, as I said before, the flip side to me of that commandment is God places no limit on generosity. The Bible would say to us, yes, do not steal, but feel released to live generous lives. And I want to say generous people tend to see the world a little differently. And I think this should apply to us as God's people. Generous people tend to hold what they own or possess a little more loosely. And I believe generous people understand more clearly the kingdom of God, that in the end it is not about food, drink, possessions, stuff. It's about Christ in us, the hope of glory. I also like the fact that when I read the New Testament, it attaches emotion to giving. Few of us get really excited about paying our taxes or ask if there's any way we could pay more. We do it out of obligation. We do it out of responsibility. We do it as our civic duty. But the New Testament, when it talks about giving, it talks about giving from a thankful, cheerful, and generous heart. That we should be 
emotionally invested in what we give to others and what we give to the church. And I made some comments before about the tithe and and kind of how I, I see that. I think there will be seasons in our lives when even giving a little will be sacrificial. That you might say, Doug, we can hardly make ends meet. There will also be times in our life, there will be seasons in our life, where we can give a lot without any sense of even real sacrifice. To tie my understanding of giving to the wagon of tithing, I think I miss the truth that I am free to give as liberally as I choose. There are many people, probably within Creekside, I certainly know it within Willow Park, who give far beyond any conversation about a tithe. It's not about a tithe for them. It's about giving of their excess for the work of God. First Timothy. Here's an instruction that is given to that church. Here's what he says to tell your people. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7 and 8, and if there's a a verse within this context that is worthy of being underlined, it's this one. And I think it's while God speaks to us about how we approach giving. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under, some Bibles say compulsion, some Bibles say pressure. And at times, I think the church is guilty of doing that. Putting pressure on people to give, and you sacrifice the feeling of a generous heart with a feeling of obligation or pressure. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under pressure, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As I said, that verse to me, I believe captures what Jesus would speak into our hearts as his children. And I want to say this morning that generous hearts are alive and well within Creekside Church. They're demonstrated in the emails And phone calls of people asking, how are certain people doing? How can we help them? They're demonstrated by care groups saying, we're looking for somebody to bless. Do you know of somebody, a family that needs help? They're demonstrated in the generous giving on our soup Sundays and our Christmas dinner. 
They're demonstrated by the fact that as a church, we are ahead of what we gave at this point last year. And I think at times, churches respond to budget shortfalls by initiating a sermon series on giving. And that message can easily assume a somewhat bad-tasting, judgmental flavor. Because instead of a cheerful heart, all of a sudden you feel pressure to give. And I want to say this morning that my conversation about generous giving and generous living reflects the heart of Creekside Church. And for that, I simply say, well done. For some, perhaps, generous living may be a lesson that is still needed to be learned. Paul mentioned that he had to learn contentment. Paul said he had to learn the secret of living. And Paul said that he found that the secret was Christ in me, the hope of glory. Generous living, I want to say, involves a continual evaluation of how I live. Am I hanging on to my money for dear life, or am I becoming a more generous person? Am I increasingly lured by the stuff of this world, or am I finding security, comfort, peace, and the hope that lies within me? And I remember somebody saying to me not that long ago in the foyer, saying, you know what, I've, I've begun to give in a, in a more deliberate way. And he said, you know what, somehow at the end of the month, nothing has really changed. It's like I still have everything that I need, and probably more than I need. I think modeling a commitment to giving is something we as parents can do. And how we do that and how we speak about that with our children, I think places an understanding in our children that God is the giver of every perfect gift, that God is our sustainer and provider, that supporting his church is important, that God is pleased with a thankful and generous heart. And I remember growing up in Chilliwack, beside our fridge, there was a little box, just a little cardboard box, and there was always money in it. Now, my memory is a bit foggy. I should have actually phoned my mom to ask her more about this, but we knew that in that box there was offering that as kids we would take to give in Sunday school. Now, it's possible that in that box there, were also, there was also more in terms of what mom and dad gave, but I still remember that as being a clear sign to me that as a family, we were committed to giving some of what we have back to God. Do not steal. Feel free to live as generous a life as your heart tells you to be. I want to say that we need to be generous people because we serve. 
a generous, giving God. John 3.16, and these verses, they, they all have the word he gave. For God so loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Philippians 2, 6 to 8, kind of appropriate for Christmas. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, though he was God. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. John 14, 16 says, it's Jesus saying, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. Our God is a giving and loving God. Jesus is a giving and loving Savior. The Holy Spirit is a gift of the living God in our lives, leading us into all truth and developing in us the fruits of the Spirit. Do not steal. Rather, be generous people of integrity and character. It's a way of declaring our treasure is not here, in heaven. There is generosity in everything God has done for us, and I think as a church, we're called to reflect the character, the image of the loving God who created us. I want to wrap up with this verse, Ephesians 5, verse 1 to 3. A worship team can come up. Of, uh, it says, therefore, talking to the church, be imitators of God as his beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Just want to say may God encourage all of us to live generous lives in response to what he has given us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I say thank you for your presence within your church this morning. Thank you, God, for the gift of Jesus Christ, who took upon himself all my sin, my shame, my guilt. Father, I thank you that the truth is that every day I am a sinner saved by the grace of a loving Heavenly Father. Thank you for that, Jesus. I thank you, God, for the gift of the Holy Spirit that speaks into our hearts, speaks into our mind. Father, may we pause to listen to your voice. May we choose to live lives that are obedient to your commands, God, because there is joy and peace to be found there. And Father, this morning we want to gather as a church around communion to once again say thank you. Thank you, God, for the fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Father, may we remember that this morning. May we remember that this Christmas season. In Jesus' precious name, amen.